whenever uh, a couple, we're going to talk about marriage today, and whenever a couple uh, comes to Pastor Terry or myself asking about marriage, we kind of enter into a period um, where we kind of pursue marriage with them, and it's a period of counseling, lasts uh, some number of meetings, and during this, this time, we, we meet and we share with the couple, um, first of all, one of the things we share is God's definition of marriage. What, is it, what does marriage mean from the Bible? What's God's roles and intentions for husbands and wives together and those sorts of things? And we start there and we begin to, from that point, begin to kind of let it bleed into their individual lives. And we begin to ask, you know, for their, their personal histories, that they share their story with us, not just their story of how they came to Christ, but their life story. Uh, and with, with that, all the things that are connected to, to, to people, because these things show up in marriage. So, um, you know, scars, victories, challenges, hang-ups, idiosyncrasies, all of those things, we're trying in, in kind of a fair-minded way to draw them out um, in, a, in, a, in a listening environment so that we might be able to counsel best how this man and woman um, might have a successful marriage. And in all that, there's times that we're talking about things that are only indirectly related to marriage, though at times it fears, feels directly for us. Money, communication, anger, sexuality, all of these things come up uh, and we talk about them. And we also observe them uh, together. You know, we'll go out on double dates or whatever, and, and, which is fun, but it's, I like it. But it's important also just to observe how does, how does this young man and this young woman behave with one another? Um, does their behavior match what they are in fact sharing? And we do this, but on the wedding day, we don't do any of this. We celebrate. On the wedding day, you celebrate. That's what you do on the wedding day. Now, it doesn't matter whether I have cautions or concerns leading up to the wedding. Right? It doesn't matter if in my mind I'm going, I'm not sure this is wise, but it's good. It's a good thing. On the wedding day, you, you, you don't take time to kind of tweak the couple anymore. You do the best you can as a pastor and as the family to, to kind of gather around and celebrate the day because it's an important day to be celebrated. And the celebration of marriage aids in the preservation of marriage. Saying to a couple, you know, and many, many parents in this room have probably been in places where going into the marriage, they're praying a lot. Very prayerful parents. But when it gets to that day, you celebrate. I mean, it would be totally inappropriate for me if I was the officiant minister to stand up here with the groom and the bride and to say in the presence of all these witnesses that I have serious doubts about your financial <laughs> ability to make this. And I'm not putting any money on y'all. Uh, and uh, here's, a, here's a pamphlet on finances. That's just not what we do. On the wedding day, we celebrate. And that's fundamentally important. It's important not just for the couple, but it's important for every witness. It's important for me. It's important for those in attendance in the family for us to elevate God's idea of marriage. Not because it's for everybody, but for those who partake in it, it's we should have God's image in mind. And a wedding is one of the few opportunities where you can talk to a couple 
whose wedding, whose marriage is completely theoretical. It hasn't even started. So we can cast the perfect godly picture because none of us are living the perfect godly picture. But it's our chance to hear what God has and to hear it expressed. And the celebration of that aids in the preservation of it among his people. Well, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to kind of do the same thing with the resurrection of Christ. Today, we're just going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Any other week of this year, it would be fine to talk about spiritual issues and, and topics and how to live a more prayerful life or, you know, how to deal with sin or, or what this scripture means or what that scripture means or how do we know that the Bible's true or all these things. All of these topics and issues, they're good and they're related and they're valuable and they mean something in the life of the church. But every now and then, we simply need to stop and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to do that. That the celebration of the resurrection of Christ aids in the preservation of His grace and mercy among God's people. And so, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ because in a way, it is kind of like a wedding. Sort of. And so this is what I mean when I say the resurrection. That Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who was crucified for the sins of the many so that all might find the forgiveness which God offers through faith, that this Jesus was raised to full and glorified life. After having been crucified on Friday, He was raised on Sunday. And that we celebrate that He is alive, that He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and that He will one day return to gather us with Him. Peter said it this way, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into the inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, which is kept for us in heaven. We're here to celebrate that this morning. We're going to celebrate the resurrection because the resurrection fuels our faith that we will live even when we die. That our trust and our hope and our faith that even when we die we will live is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's why we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate the resurrection because it commands our hope that the things in this life that are messed up will be made right. All the sadness and grief and injustice and the bloodshed and, and the hunger and the famine and the infirmities and when things are placed out of order and the, and the broken relationships and divorce and, 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 a, and orphans and all of these things, all the poverty, all the brokenness in the whole world through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we trust and have this hope that He will make it right. That He will redeem all of that. Not some of that, all of that. Paul says it this way. He says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown as weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised as a spiritual body. We believe this and we celebrate this when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus 
Christ. When we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we do it because we believe that the love of Jesus Christ redeems things, redeems things fully for himself. Your broken souls, your broken hearts, your broken dreams, broken people, that Jesus Christ comes and he, he mends these things and he brings them together and he, re, he redeems things into a beautiful state. He takes something that was broken and he fixes it. When the Pharisees were asking Jesus to validate his teachings, they said, give us a sign. What miraculous sign can you show us that you have the authority to say what you say? And Jesus said this, I'll tell you the truth. You tear this temple down and I will raise it in three days. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has the power to take something broken and to reassemble it into something beautiful. We rejoice in the resurrection of Christ because it is our corporate hope that things will end well. It's our hope. It's our belief that things end well. It's the Christian ability to end the story with a happy ending. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says if Christ is not resurrected, we are to be the most pitied of all people. He says our lives are meaningless if Christ is not resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our hope that things will end well. And more than end well, not just end well, but end better than they started. This is the unique power of the resurrection. It's not that God just fixes things, but that he fixes things and he makes them better than they even were in the first place. That he takes something and he restores it and he fixes it and he mends it, but then he fills it with himself. And he glorifies it and he makes it better. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not simply you being fixed. It's you being changed into a new and better version of you. It's you being born all over again. We're not just forgiven. We're brought back into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the resurrection. It's the celebration and the faith that God will take who we are, He'll take us, He'll clean us, He'll fix us, and He'll make us better. That we'll let go of our old earthly personhood, the old earthly version of ourselves, and we'll take on a new earthly, more wonderful version of ourselves. That we'll take off the rags of our sinful and, and soiled rags of unrighteousness, and not simply that we'll put on clean rags, but that we'll put on white, spotless rags of Jesus Christ, beautiful garments. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is taking soiled water and not simply making it water, clean water, but taking soiled water and making vats and vats of wine for a wedding. That's the resurrection of Christ. It's taking it and making it a whole new thing. This is an idea that is central in marriage. God has given us the biblical picture of marriage to teach us and to remind us and to allow us to celebrate this idea that we who are one can be joined with someone and become one again, but more, better. I'm not saying that we all experience that. I'm saying that God is saying, this is the way you should understand me. I, through the perfect picture of marriage, am explaining my deep, sincere love for you and my ability to take you 
add myself to you, start all over again and make you something wonderful. God uses the family to explain himself to us. He's our father. He's not an earthly father. He's a good, perfect, holy father. And we understand him that way. And we are one another's brothers and sisters. And the scriptures use that so that we can understand that we are one another's keeper. That we are, we are codependent on God and we are also responsible for one another. But the image that Christ used, or the image that scripture uses to explain the role of Christ in our relationship and the, the significance of the resurrection in our relationship is that of a marriage. That the scriptures have set Jesus apart as the husband of God's people. That God's people are, is the bride and that Jesus is the husband. And that, that image is, is a most holy image. It's a most mysterious image that's given to the church for us to process how does God love us and care for us. Paul says it this way. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body, of which he is the Savior. And then it says to the husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now listen to this. Gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is the resurrection. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Christ is taking us. And he's not simply starting over with us. He's adding to us and making us better than we ever were through the power of the resurrection. And this idea has been cast throughout Scripture. I want to share one, one area with, with you that has mattered a lot to me in recent weeks because it comes so early. It's, to me, it is a resurrection image that shows up even before the fall that it's so central to the truth and the love of God that He gave it to us even before the fall. And it shows up in Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation of the man and the woman. If you imagine that the woman is God's people, if we are God's people, if we are the great bride of Christ, if this woman, in order for this woman to be in paradise in Genesis chapter 2, in order for her to even be there, to exist and have life in paradise, this is what has to happen to her husband. God has to lay him down. God has to pierce his side. God has to remove his flesh and make her out of it. Then God breathes the Spirit of God into her, raises them both back together, and unites them. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, given to us from a sixth-day image. Laying Christ down, giving of himself, giving his body so that we might live and be united with him in life and in paradise. This is the resurrection image. And this follows throughout the scriptures. When these issues of a wedding or of a marriage are used in scripture, they're obviously 
using them with their understanding of marriage in mind, which is not Western. It's not our understanding. It's the ancient Near East understanding of, of marriage, which is somewhat more involved. It's somewhat more um, formal than the, way, than the ways we do it. I want to share it with you. I'm going to share it with you slowly, piece by piece, so that you can appreciate the, resur- the role of the resurrection of Christ and the idea of this marriage. So imagine again, just hold in your mind that the people of God, we collectively are the bride. We are the bride or the woman who's awaiting marriage. And that Jesus is the groom, okay? So hold those images in mind and just listen to the ancient Near East process of marriage. In that time, in the time of Christ, when a man like Joseph, when a a man was drawn or had affection for a woman, this is how, this is the process by which he would go. He would go to the father of the woman and he would say to the father of the woman, what is the cost? Like, I want to marry your daughter. I want to be united to your daughter. What is the bride price? And they would negotiate. There would be a price that is negotiated in order that this man might be able to redeem the woman for himself. And they would talk about this cost and they would come to an arrangement of the cost for this woman. Now, for the woman, especially in this time, marriage is her hope for life. It's her hope for provision. It's her hope for cultural identity. It's her hope for children, which is an identifying mark, especially during that time. So all of these things are, are in the heart of the woman that she's desi- she desires to be desired. And she's dependent on someone coming and negotiating with her father for her cost so that she might be redeemed and married. And the man has to do that. He has to go to the father and he has to agree on a price and he has to pay this price in full then. This is not an IOU. This is not an engagement where the price is paid at the altar at the wedding. This is a price that it is paid there and then at the negotiations. That is where the marriage is secured, it's assured, it's committed. That is where it's all done. That's where the ultimate price is paid is right there when the woman is redeemed for the, for the future husband. Scriptures say you were bought at a great price. Jesus came to an unlovely woman who had nothing to commend herself to him. And he negotiated a severe cost for us. Ezekiel 16 talks about this child. It's it's a graphic, graphic prophetic image. It's graphically deep and moving that the Lord says, I was walking along in a field and I saw this, this infant child lying in a pool of its own birth and blood and just sitting there abandoned. And the Lord says, and I looked down upon you and I said, live. And I gave you life. And he says, and I raised you up and I dealt with you. And I was a good father to you. And I taught you the way. And I fed you. And I nurtured you. And I cared for you like a good father. And then the story begins to transition. The image transitions beautifully, beautifully from God the Father to God the Husband. To Christ the Husband. It says, and you one day grew old and beautiful. And you were formed into a beautiful woman. And he says, and then I gave you my love. And I wed you. God is both the father of the bride and the groom of the bride. Well, after the betrothal, that's called the betrothal. After the price is paid and the woman's security in marriage is, is, is fixed and she's committed and she has trust and she knows 
that, that her life is going to be taken care of. After all that is done, the future husband doesn't remain there and they don't whip up a wedding. What happens is he returns home. He goes home to prepare his house for her. This is the custom. And very oftentimes, it wasn't like in, in, in our day where we leave, leave our families and we go to another town. Very often what would happen is the son would come back and they would add on to the home of the father. They would just add on to the estate because it was shared land in the Jewish history. So the son had the land of the father. And so they would add on and they would prepare a space because now there's going to be a new person living with a new family. And while he's preparing that, over here the bride is preparing and in classic form for the wedding. Making arrangements for the wedding. Jesus says this in John 14, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you may also be where I am. That is marital language. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare. And while I prepare, you prepare. And one day, I'm going to return. And when I return, I'll take you to myself, and then there will be a great wedding ceremony. And then we will be united. What was already paid for will then be made true, right? The betrothal, it was already and it was not yet. But he's saying, one day I'll come back, and we will consummate what has already been paid for. Which is Christ's promise to us, is he will one day return and claim that which for, for which he's already died and been resurrected. This is our hope in resurrection. And this is how the Bible ends. The Bible ends with a wedding ceremony. The Bible ends with us enjoying and celebrating the fruit of the redemption of Christ. But the wedding ceremony only happens because what Christ has paid. And we find it here in the 19th chapter. The first Hence of it in the 19th chapter. Word is reaching the earth that Jesus Christ is coming to claim his bride. And it shows up here in the 6th verse. This is what the world begins to say as the arrival of the groom is impending. He says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Alleluia. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Even look at verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Now immediately following this section, Jesus arrives. The great rider in the sky comes down. He arrives to the earth to claim his bride. And in the process of doing so, he separates out those who are his bride from those who are not his bride. And he brings to judgment and fullness all unrighteousness. And he casts all unrighteousness, even death itself, into the fiery lake so that all that's left on the earth, all that's left there is the spotless bride waiting to be wed. And then when we get to the 21st chapter, we see the wedding.
I'll read the first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. But God has joined together. Let no man bring a son. This is the marriage. This marriage between Christ and the church is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ has purchased at great cost, He has redeemed at the wedding. And what we end up seeing here in the remainder of these chapters is this description of the bride. An angel grabs John and says, you've got to see this. And he takes John up in the spirit onto a high mountain so he can look down onto this beautiful woman. You might think of it, it's a woman, it's a city, it's the people of God. All the images of Revelation are colliding in the very end of the book. And they're colliding here and the angel says, look down onto this woman and see how perfect her dimensions are and how well and how beautifully she's been arrayed and presented and prepared for the, for the groom. And I want, to read it, I want to read it over you. I want you to listen. I want you to take it in. I want you to understand these words of Scripture as being descriptive of what God has in store for us. In verse 10 it says this, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The bride is coming down the aisle. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod, <clears throat> with the rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. It's described as a cube. The city is a cube, which in that day was the perfect shape. The city comes down. He measured its walls, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, in the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. 
The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. Now listen to this. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful for only those whose names are written in the book of life. The resurrection of Christ is the power to take a thing, to make that thing new, and to make it better. To make it better than it ever was. This is a union. This is a union between God and man where God is no longer hidden in a temple and God is no longer hidden behind a most holy place and God is is now out in the open that His throne is sitting out in the open and on our heads the scriptures say His name which until now was not even known that His real name will be written on our heads and that He will be among us and with us. It's the perfect consummated union of a heavenly marriage. In the past, I've thought that um, the goal, the final end state of, of God was to bring us back to the paradise of the Garden of Eden. That, that's, how, that's how I examined Scripture. That really what we're trying to do is get back to the Garden. And that's true in a way. That's true in a way. But the reality is, is that we... God actually has something better in store for us than the paradise that started the whole thing. The the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power for our faith to begin with in the beginning and to end with in the beginning. To have a new beginning. But the new beginning at the end is better than the beginning at the beginning. And look at this. And remember in, in, in the Garden of Eden, how many trees were there? There were two. There's the tree of life, and then there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as I've listened in my heart and as I've asked, that in a way was a, it was a contingency within the garden. That this paradise for Adam and Eve, that this paradise was given to them, so long as they displayed faithful, worshipful obedience by not eating from the tree of life. And the, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there, kind of as the constant reminder of that, that you can eat from every tree, but don't eat from that. There was, there was consequence in the garden. There was a potential curse in the garden that they knew that on the day that they eat from the tree of life, they would die. There was a contingency in the garden of Eden. It was perfect. It was wonderful. It was without blemish. But there was a contingency in order for them to remain there. Not so with the city. Look in the 22nd chapter. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are there for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. We're not being simply brought back to Eden. We're being brought to a place where there is no contingent. We're being brought to a place where there is no curse. That in a sense, out of the, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, through, through their disobedience and their lack of faith, were ejected from the Garden. But for us, we, our path towards the new city, towards the new tree of life, has started with obedience and with faith and with worship. And so that when we arrive there, we're not, no longer living in a, in a world with contingency, in a world where just in case we continue to live righteous, God is telling us that at the end, because of His redemption, because of His love for us and our faith in Him, we will live in a life where there is no curse. This is our reason to celebrate. This is the reason that the bride says to the groom, Come, Lord. Come quickly.